Now, we had the ice storm, and I know that Christmas can be a good time to watch movies, and I started watching some old superhero movies as I was looking for things to watch, and I was just thinking about how almost all superhero movies have kind of the same plot line. Not all of them necessarily, but there's always a hero. There's usually a villain or some kind of villain, and someone needs saving. As I was thinking about superhero movies, I was looking on the internet at some superheroes that may not be getting their own movies anytime soon. These are some kind of obscure superheroes that actually maybe have their own comics, but I don't think they would make it on the big screen. The first one is 3D Man. It's a two-dimensional being that is on somebody's glasses, and if he focuses really hard, he sees 3D Man and he fights crime. I don't know how they would do that even with CGI and things like that, but for some reason he didn't catch fire. The second one was Normal Man. Normal Man lives in a world of superheroes and he's the only normal person and so he's Normal Man. Which that actually might be a good movie, I don't know, but I'm not a movie director. The third superhero is Funny Man. He fights crime with the power of humor and sarcastic jokes. There's Zebra Man who I couldn't find anything really about him except he just kind of looked like a zebra. And then the last one and my favorite one was The Invisible Man, which strangely I don't think he's been seen in any movies, at least that I've taken part in. The truth of every superhero movie, like I said, is there's usually a hero, there's some kind of villain or force of evil, and then there's someone that needs saving. Now I've used this illustration before. When you're growing up as a kid, everybody might want to be a hero, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, and you might have some kids that want to be a villain. You might be a little worried about them, but you've got some kids who want to be a villain, but no one wants to be the person who needs saving. Yet in every superhero movie, someone needs saving. It's maybe a person, maybe it's a woman who's been kidnapped or something like that. There's a lot of movies that follow that plot line. Maybe it's the world. You know, this hero is going to save the world. I don't know how many times in some of these movies the heroes can save the world. If the world was in danger that many times, I would be worried about just, yeah, the future condition of it, I guess. But in every superhero movie, something or someone needs saving. And as you read the Bible, you see a common theme that we actually need to be saved. We are in danger. We are in danger of eternal death. When you read the Bible, in the book of Romans, it tells us that we've all fallen short of God's glory. That because of our sin, we don't measure up to God and the actual penalty for that sin, what we earn because of that sin is death and eternal separation from God. Jesus says there's going to be a day when those who he does not know, he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire. The truth is, is that all of us without Christ need saving. There's not a single one of us who could save ourselves. And that is where Jesus, the Savior, comes in. As we've been studying, who is Jesus? We've seen that he's a prophet. He's not just a prophet. But yes, Jesus had a message from God for the whole world. He's our great high priest. He intercedes to God on our behalf. We actually couldn't go to God. We can't see God's face Every priest that would go to God was a sinful man, and he could only have a little bit of a taste, even just in the tabernacle of God's presence. But remember, those human priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. But Jesus is perfect. He felt our 
world. He felt temptation, but he was sinless. He did not sin. And he is able to go to the Father perfectly on our behalf. And then last week, Jesus is the king of Israel, yes, but also of the entire universe. Jesus is supreme. And those are the three messianic offices is what a lot of people call them of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. But on Christmas Day, I want us to focus on Jesus the Savior. And he's given this title a lot throughout Scripture. And why is that? Well, really, the message of the Bible is about God's glory, yes, but it's about how God's glory is shown through his son, Jesus Christ, saving sinners, saving people who need help. As we look at who Jesus is, we see that he is a savior who will save you from your sins. The sad truth is that many will answer that question even today. Again, be talked about. Even if you're unsaved, you hear all these Christmas songs and you can do something with them, but they don't have the same meaning if you're not a Christian. Everybody, even in the world, is going to hear songs about Christ. In fact, when I'm subbing, one of the things I like to do is play Christmas music because it kind of calms the kids down. But I often play Chris, Christian Christmas music about Christ and just say, hey, it's Christmas music, you know. And it's interesting. Everybody knows the songs, but what do they do with Jesus? And the sad truth today is that many will not accept Christ as their Savior for two reasons. They either don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, or they don't believe they are actually in trouble. Imagine if you were stranded on a raft at sea, you had no other hope, and you were just kind of lost at sea, maybe you were shipwrecked or something, and a boat came by. And as the boat is coming by, it's going to offer you help and take you back to land. And what if you said, hey, I don't actually think you're a boat, or I don't actually think you can help me. Now, this is the only boat that's going to help you for probably miles. You're probably going to die if you don't get help from this boat. And that'd be insane to say, oh, I don't think this boat could help me. Or on the other hand, if someone came by to help you and you said, actually, I'm, I'm just fine. I'm, I don't think I'm in any danger. You can just keep on going. And that's the truth of many today. They will not accept the gospel because they either don't think Jesus can save them. They don't think Jesus is who he says he is. Or they don't think they are really in that much trouble. And the truth is, whether they accept the gospel or not, there will be a day where they recognize how lost they truly are. How many of us in this room have been saved? We've accepted the gospel. And as we grow older, we start to see, man, I was really wicked, wasn't I? I was really lost. I was really in sin and, and still am. And as we continue in the journey of the Christian life, we start realizing just how good and holy and perfect God is and just how sinful and lost and broken we are. So what we want to see from John chapter 3 this morning is that Jesus came to the earth to save sinners from judgment. Jesus came to the earth. He is Jesus the Savior. And he came to save sinners from eternal Judgment. And the question we want to answer is, why did Jesus come? Why does Jesus save? We're going to see three reasons for that. But before we do, we need to understand a little bit about where we are in the book of John. Now, I know a few sermons ago when we talked about Jesus the prophet, I talked about John. Maybe you'd 
understood some things then. I mentioned some things that I'm going to mention now. Maybe you were asleep or something. That's fine. I'll say it all again anyways. But John is written for the purpose so that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It says that at the end of the book of John. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. So it's all written from the standpoint of John wants you to know that Jesus is God. All the different gospel writers have a different theme about who Christ is, the king, a human. John focuses on Jesus as God. And really throughout John, he's going to show these different signs proving that Jesus is God. Now, as we look at this early, these early couple chapters about Christ, we start seeing even some different stories. So John actually assumes that you've read some of the other Gospels because Matthew, Mark, and Luke will have a lot of the same stories in them, just told maybe in different ways. John is assuming you've read those, and he's kind of giving you, I like to think of it a little bit as behind the scenes, not really, but he's giving you some different stories that aren't included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he's also not necessarily using those stories, but it all connects into the same gospel. I hope that makes sense. But John is giving you this story here in John 3 about Jesus and Nicodemus, and it's not mentioned in the other three gospels. But it does show us something about who Jesus is. So remember, Nicodemus is a man who was a Pharisee. He was a very important religious leader. In fact, there's other writings that will talk about Nicodemus and how influential he was. And Nicodemus was not a Pharisee trying to catch Jesus off guard. There's people who think that, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee spy trying to catch Jesus in a trap. That's not true. Nicodemus was truly interested in who Christ was. He was a Pharisee, a political person, and he went to Jesus at night because he was afraid of what the other Pharisees would think or do to him if they saw him talking to Jesus. So Nicodemus is actually very interested in the gospel. But we do get a little commentary, maybe not just on Nicodemus, but on the Pharisees later. We remember this from John 12, how it talks about how some of the religious leaders saw the signs, believed that Jesus was who he says he was, but they didn't believe because they were afraid of what the others would do to them. And so this is a little bit of even the motivation behind Nicodemus. And he's talking to Jesus and he's saying, hey, I know that you do these signs. No one else can do these signs. So you must be a teacher from God. And then Jesus starts saying, hey, you need to be born again. And it seems a little bit random, but Jesus is getting past the fact that, hey, I'm not just this teacher that does all these cool signs, but I am giving you eternal life. You have a sinful condition. I'm not just here for all these miracles, but he starts attacking really the heart of the problem and explaining what it means to be born again, what it means to be saved. And so that leads us to these five verses or so in John. Now, I'm going to suggest something, and you can study it out for yourself. In your Bible, maybe these words are written in red, John 16 through John 21. And oftentimes when they're written in red, that means that Jesus actually said them. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but a lot of times in John, John gives these little narrator's notes about what is happening. He does this in John 1. In fact, if you look back at John 1, he'll say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That's not Jesus saying that. That's John saying that. 
So one of the interesting things about John's gospel is that the narrator, who is John, is giving some explanation about what is going on. And there are a lot of people who I think for some good reasons believe that actually verses 16 through 21 were written by John as a sort of commentary on what Jesus is saying, on who Jesus is. Now, whether Jesus said it or John said it, these things are part of the message of Christ. And so don't spend too much time worrying about them. I'm sure Jesus, this was part of his message. But whether Jesus said them or John said them, this is describing at least the work of Christ. And so we start in John chapter 3, verse 16, and we look at that first verse, which is very well known. We see the first reason for why God sent Jesus to the world. Why does Jesus save? Number one, because God loves the world. Now, I don't think this is necessarily the only reason why Jesus saves. You can make an argument that he saves because he wants to glorify the Father. And yes, that's true. But this is a huge motivation, and we see it here. Why does Jesus say that it says, For God so loved the world? That word so could probably be better translated as this. For God loved the world in this way. Or this is how God showed his love. So, can, or so here can show how much you're doing it, or like the extent, but it can also be the manner. So instead of, for God so loved the world... For God in this way loved the world, or this is the way God chose to love the world. You think about even the Christmas story, why did God choose Bethlehem? Why did God choose a manger? Why did God choose Christ coming as a baby? Why did he choose a cross? Well, this is the way that God chose to show his love for the world. Now we see the world here, God does love the world. This doesn't mean that all of the world is going to be saved. And there's some people that misunderstand this verse. They think, well, God loves the world, so the world is going to be saved. That's actually not true. We're going to see that from John 3. Those who are saved are those who believe in Jesus Christ, who put their faith and trust in him. But yet God loves the world. This idea of love here that John is talking about is seeking the highest good for someone. God loves the world. We talked about this when we studied Titus. And really, Titus 3 is another great passage on Jesus the Savior, how Jesus saves us, not by our works of righteousness, but because he is rich in mercy. One of the terms there used to describe God is this word philanthropos. It means a lover of humanity. It's where we get our word for philanthropy. It's saying that God is the ultimate lover of mankind. God loves Humans, he seeks their highest good. That doesn't mean he's going to give us whatever we want, but it does mean that love is a motivation for what God does. In fact, if you read 1 John, you see all these different things about loving one another, showing love towards your brother. It's all rooted in this fact that God loves us. And we have a wrong idea of what love is in society. We think that we can define what love is. All the LGBTQ movement, all the different social movements, they want to say this is what love is, and if God is love, God's going to look like this. Well, actually, God gets to define what love is. First John 4 says God is love. So he sets the standard for what love is, and how does God describe what love is? God loved the world in this way. Christ coming, dying on the cross for us. And First John 4, this is love that he laid down his life for us. 
the ultimate expression of love. It's the ultimate way you can show someone that you love them. Now, as many of you know, all of you know, I got engaged over a week ago, and around Thanksgiving, I was looking at engagement rings with my fiance. And as we're looking around, we were looking at several different prices for rings and jewelry. And then I said, hey, can we go to like the clearance section, you know, maybe away from these really expensive rings? And I just remember thinking, even as I was buying the ring, and there wasn't a doubt in my mind I wanted to do it, that I wanted to buy the ring and give it to her before Christmas. But I can remember thinking, you know, when I was single, like a, you know, a year ago or so, you know, I think about last year at this time, I would have never thought about spending this much money on a piece of jewelry, you know? I would have never thought about spending this amount of money on someone, but my love motivates me to buy that for her. Now, just because I love someone doesn't mean I'm going to buy them whatever they want necessarily. In fact, we run into this around Christmas time. We buy gifts for one another, right, to show our love for them, and because it's what we do around Christmas. Now, I'm not saying we should go broke buying people Christmas gifts necessarily. In fact, a lot of people in my family usually set a price limit for what we buy one another. But sometimes it's more than that, and sometimes it's less than the price limit. But eventually, when you're buying for someone in your family, you think, okay, this is too much. I'm buying for my brother, don't tell him. And I remember the price limit. I'm looking at different games because he's really into board games and things. And I knew this is about how much I want to spend on him. There's some games that were a little below that, and I wanted to get him something nicer. There's some things that are above that that I just can't afford in my price limit. When God loves the world, it motivates him to give his son. Meaning this, there was not a price limit There was not something that was too much when God gave Jesus. In fact, in Romans 8, it says, He who did not spare his own son. Now, you would think that would be the limit. I'd give you anything, but I wouldn't give you my own child. But God, it says, God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It wasn't enough that Jesus was his son. It wasn't enough that he was his only son. Now, maybe your translation says only begotten son. That's how I memorized it when I was growing up. You often wonder, what does that word begotten mean? Well, that word only begotten, my translation says just his only son. It actually means unique. It means one of a kind, rare. There's no one else like him, special, some kind of special relationship. How is Jesus unique? He's the only person that's 100% God, 100% man. No one else can ever do that. We've seen even how Jesus is unique. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. He's a savior. He is God's only son, the only God man. He's fully God and fully man. So Christ is unique. If you ever looked for someone's Christmas present, maybe they're very particular on what you want to get them. And maybe something that you get them is one of a kind. It's the only one like it. Christ was the ultimate gift that God could give. It's the ultimate expression of his love. God loved the world in this way that he gave us Christ, who was his only begotten son or only son. He gave us Christ for this purpose. Why did he send his son? It says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those who would believe in Christ, put their faith and trust in him, repent of their sins, trust in his sacrifice on the cross, 
would not perish. And again, that word perish has the idea of rotting away, being destroyed, being doomed, shows our need for a savior, right? I remember when I was about six years old learning that verse in school, and I remember asking, what does it mean to perish? I remember the teacher even telling me like a flower, how it kind of withers away. That's not exactly what's going to happen to us if you don't accept the gospel. You're not just going to be annihilated, but you're going to spend eternity in hell forever. But God is not willing that we would perish. He sent his only son. That doesn't mean all of us are going to be saved. Who's going to be saved? Those who put their faith and trust in Christ. So why do people not accept God's gift of salvation? God loves the world. He sent his only son, Christ, and I think this gift is available to all. Why do they not accept the love of the Father? Well, maybe, number one, they don't believe that God truly loves them. Maybe you've talked to someone who's had a difficult parent relationship, especially a relationship with a father. It can be hard for them to understand the love that God the Father has towards them. Maybe they don't believe that God can truly love them. Maybe they don't believe that God will do what he says he's going to do. And number two, I've already said this, maybe they don't think they actually need saving. Have you ever gotten a gift you don't really need? Like, hey, that's great, but it's probably just going to go in my attic because I don't really need another one of these, you know. People can think, I don't really need salvation. The truth about Jesus the Savior is that he came because God loves us, truly loves us, and he came because we need him and we'll talk about that later so do you believe this do you believe that god loves you that christ came to save you jesus came to the earth to save those who would repent and put their faith in him we're going to see that he came because god loves us i want us to secondly see that jesus came to the earth why does jesus save because jesus saves now that sounds redundant But that's actually what Jesus does. We're going to see that in verses 17 and 18 of John 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is actually part of what Jesus is, of who he is. He's the Savior. Why does Jesus save? Because he saves. Now, John brings up an interesting point, whether John said this or Jesus said this, an objection that a lot of people have about Christianity. And that is that they think that Christianity judges them, that they think Christianity condemns them, judges their lifestyle. And I will admit there are sections of Christianity, even in some of our extended circles, not our church, but there have been times where the church has become legalistic and even condescending towards others. But is Christ the one who condemns people? Well, this is a little bit of a confusing question because it says here, Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world. Later in John nine thirty nine, Jesus says, I actually came to judge the world. I came for judgment. So it's like, okay, which one is it? Are you judging the world? Are you not judging the world? Well, I actually think there's a difference between condemnation and judgment. The world is actually condemned already. In fact, we're going to see that in verse 18. All of us without Christ are already condemned. You can't do enough good things to save yourself. From the moment you're born, you're born with a sin nature. You're born with a heart that wants to reject God because of original sin. In that rejection, you're already condemned. God cannot have sin in his heaven. You're already condemned before 
God. Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn you. You are already condemned already. So Jesus instead came to save. Jesus came to save. And this is hard for people to understand. They think that Jesus condemns them, that Christianity condemns them. What they don't realize is that without Christ, they already are condemned. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, instead, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, what does that word might mean? Does it mean that, okay, Jesus might try to save you? No, it's actually the possibility. So everyone is condemned already, but through Christ, you have the possibility of being saved. Meaning this, not everyone will trust Christ. Not everyone that Jesus comes to will accept him as Savior. Who will do that? It is those, in verse 18, who believe in him. They are not condemned. But there will be some, and it says that there, who will not believe and they're condemned already. So Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus actually came to save. He says that. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus came and did a lot of things on earth. He serves people. We talked about that last night. Jesus, the servant, he healed people. And a lot of people think, okay, Jesus healed people. That is what he does. And so even today, you know, Jesus is going to heal you from whatever you have going on physically in your life. That's not always true. Jesus did heal people, yes. But that's not the reason why he came. Jesus actually came to heal us from our ultimate affliction, to heal us from our sin. Christ didn't come to the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. He came to offer the world salvation. We see in verse 18, who can be saved? Who can have the salvation? Those who believe, who repent, put their faith and trust in Christ. Now, even as we look at these verses, it seems very man-centered, right? You have to believe. You have to repent. You have to trust. But we know from Scripture that God is the one working in our heart. God is the one that softens our hearts. God is the one that calls us to repentance and faith. Jesus came to the world because he came to save. Why will people reject Jesus this Christmas? Because they don't think he can save them. Maybe they're lost in sin. Maybe they're so far deep in their sin. And maybe you've met people like this who have had a rough life, who have done things they're not proud of. And they think, Jesus can never save me. No one can ever bring me back from the things I've done. And at the heart of it all, there's a lack of belief. There's a lack of belief either in what Christ has done for them, that he can save them, or there's a lack of belief in how truly lost they are. You meet other people who think, oh, I don't need Jesus to save me. I'm a pretty good person compared to the world's standards. I haven't done these things. God's just going to call it good when I get to heaven that's not true christ came to save because he saves us and then lastly what i want us to see in verses 19 through 21 jesus came to save because we need saving because we need him because we are truly lost without him look at verse 19 and this is the judgment remember we're condemned already but christ does bring judgment and it's going to explain how this happens here and this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. So John's now explaining how Jesus 
even brings this judgment. He starts using this terminology of darkness and light. Now, if you've read more of the book of John or the book of 1 John, this is an analogy that he likes to use a lot. If you remember 1 John 1, we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. A lot of the light terminology in 1 John is based on how light is used here. In fact, turn to John chapter 1. I've read this before. I think I read it a couple weeks ago, but I want to read it again. If you look at verse 3, so it talks about how in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Get all the way down to verse 4, actually. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. From the very beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is called not only the word, which he is, but also the light. And then we see that theme continue. Talks about John the Baptist, how he's not the light, but he comes to bear witness for the light. In verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So that's interesting that John brings us up. Christ came to the world, yes. But he also made the world that he walked in. The tree that he died on, yes, he was part of that creation process of the world being created. So the world was made through him, yet, notice that little phrase, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is actually a huge theme in John. Remember I said, John is about, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And one of the themes that we see from the very beginning is this. There's some who don't believe. There's some who see the light and they don't believe. They don't follow. He came to the world. He came to his own people. And yet his people did not know him. And that's so true as you read the Gospel of John. People following Jesus, getting close to Jesus, asking questions about Jesus. Maybe they're around the light. They're attracted to the light. But at the end of the day... They don't accept him. They don't believe him. But it says in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So this idea of light and darkness is seen even here. Now light shines the brightest in darkness, right? You can really see the power of a light when it's in a dark room. Christ here came as a light and what is the darkness? Well, it's the world. It's us. We are in darkness. But the truth is actually this. You don't realize how much darkness you're actually in until you go to the light. That's what John is trying to show here. Jesus came as a light. He came as a light for the world. But what did people do? Did they run to the light? You know, if you were in a dark room, would you immediately run to the light? Now, I don't really like the dark, so I would, yes, immediately go to the light. I like to have a little light on at night just so that my room isn't completely dark. So, yes, I would want to be by the light. But why do people not go to Jesus as the light of the world? The truth is this. They love darkness rather than light. Why do people not accept the gospel. You can look at family members, friends. You might even see some of them today around Christmas season. You're like, oh, why don't they get saved? 
They're actually a good person. Why don't they just accept the gospel? The truth is, and I'm not trying to talk bad about your family, they're not a good person. They don't love the light. They don't love Christ. They love darkness. And that is true for each and every one of us. You might think, why did it take me so long to accept the gospel? Why do people not believe in Christ? It's because they love the darkness that they're in. When you choose sin over Jesus, you must come down to the truth that you love that sin more than you love him. And John is showing us that here. The light came into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. And why is that? Because their works are evil. The light shows us our works and he's going to start showing us that in verse 20. Look at what it says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now, one of the, I think this is one of the greatest inventions that we've had in the past, I don't know, decade, is that on your phone, you've got a little flashlight here. I had one for years, but didn't realize it was on there. And someone said, why don't you just use the flashlight on your phone? And I said, what are you talking about? Well, you just hit this little flashlight button. I didn't know what that was. And you get the flashlight on your phone and you can look around. That is amazing. Now I don't have to carry a flashlight around with me. I remember at night when Max started sleeping in my bed, he'd start kind of whimpering or something, and I would use the flashlight on my phone to see, and you know, I'd turn it on, he'd be like, oh, turn that off, you know? The light exposes what is happening in darkness. When I was working as a camp counselor years ago, several years ago, if the kids were starting to talk and things like that at night in the dark, it's funny, I can't see them, yes, because of the darkness. They didn't think I couldn't, they thought I couldn't hear them which it's a quiet cabin. Of course, I could hear that. What do I do? Turn the light on, you know, see what's going on. Darkness exposes, or light exposes what is going on in darkness. So why don't people come to the light? Because the light would expose their works. And the truth is their works are evil. There are people in the world, all people really without Christ, who love their sin, they want to continue in sin, they don't accept the gospel because the gospel says, the gospel accepts you as you are, yes, the gospel will expose your sin and show you just how sinful you truly are. It's the truth about what Christ did when he came to the world. Think about the Pharisees. They were righteous, everybody thought they were the best. He showed them their sin, that they were really whitewashed tombs. As they start to try to trick Jesus and use the law to try to condemn Jesus, Jesus uses it right back on them. He uses God's word to expose their darkness and their works. Why do we need Jesus? Why did Jesus come to save? We need him because we are truly lost. And his light actually exposes our sin. But not everyone rejects the light, and that's the hope of what John is saying here of what he at least records here. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. What is John saying here? It's not that people who do righteous things on their own 
come to the light because none of us do righteousness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says there's no one that seeks after God. There's no one that does what is good. But who comes to the light? Those who believe in Christ. Because they believe in Christ, their works have been carried out, it says, by him. He's the one enabling them to do good works. Do you think about Christmas season as believers in Jesus Christ? Someone does good works, cares for one another, shows someone really the light of the gospel. It's not because they did it on their own. And we should be thankful that it's because Christ is working in them. So a little bit of a little bit of metaphor is being used here. It can be a little confusing to understand, but just to try to summarize what we've been saying, Jesus is the light. His light exposes the sin and the selfish works of the world. Those who truly know Jesus aren't afraid of his light, but actually come willingly to his light because it's not by anything they've done, but rather what he's done through them. They do works that are righteous. This is the truth of who Jesus is. And the truth this morning is that you will always stay in darkness until you accept what he's done for you, until you believe in him, until you repent and believe the gospel. That's why the gospel of John is written, so that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus doesn't want us to stay in darkness. God doesn't want us to stay in darkness. Our darkness will lead to our eventual destruction. But instead, he wants us to come to the light. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. So how do we come to the light? Well, first of all, you have to accept the fact that you've sinned, that you're not perfect, that you've fallen short, that all your good things you've ever done in your life are nothing compared to what Christ has done for you. You don't truly seek after God on your own. You have to accept the fact that you are a sinner and that you need saving. You have to believe that Jesus can save you. That's what he does. He didn't come to condemn the world. He actually came to save the world. That's who he is. That's what he does. You have to repent and believe in what he has done for you on the cross. And then you can come to the light and it shows your good works, not by anything you've done, but by God working in you. So two final questions this morning. as we think about Jesus, the Savior. First of all, has Jesus saved you? And I trust that's true for all of us, but... It's an important question to continue to remind ourselves, has Jesus saved you? We think about even during this Christmas time, all that Christ has done for us as believers. Let's not lose sight of that fact that Jesus has saved us. And secondly, will you worship him this Christmas? Jesus, the Savior, who is the light of the world, he came as a light into a dark world he came as a baby with all these different things going on there was 400 years of silence but christ came as the hope to all you can remember i've probably told this story before i was in a storm 
a couple years ago when I was in college. I was doing an internship. I was in the middle of Iowa. I was driving my truck, and I've not always been a huge fan of storms, but by that time I wasn't that afraid of them, and there was a lot of tornadoes and storms like that in Iowa. And so I remember I was driving to the place I was living, and I'm on just, you know, I was flat. There's no hills, there's no mountains or anything. It is just cornfields and just flatness, nothing. And I got that little alert on my radio that said, you know, it's like the emergency alert signal. It's pretty much saying, hey, if you're outside, you need to not be outside because there's a tornado coming. I can remember the wind pushing me into the ditch of the road, and it's, you know, hailing and raining and things like that. I can remember just being so, like, afraid of what was happening and recognizing in that moment that I needed someone to come help me. I didn't want to stay in that ditch. And so I called the pastor that I was working with, and people have asked me, like, well, how is he able to get to you when your car was blown into the ditch? I really don't know that, honestly. But somehow, some way, he came, he helped me out, and we were able to get back. And I remember as we were telling the story later, even as I'm telling people, I was wanting to say, you know, oh, it wasn't that bad. I wasn't really that lost. I didn't really need that much help. But the truth of the matter is that I was very afraid. I didn't know what was going to happen to me when I was in that car, and I needed him to come help me. So you think about Jesus and what he's done for us. My prayer is that our hearts don't say, oh, when Jesus saved me, I wasn't really that bad. But that we recognize that Jesus saved us because we truly needed it. So this Christmas season, my prayer for you is that you know Jesus, that you would understand who he is. I hope that this series has helped you with that. That Jesus has saved you from your sins and that you would share that message with others. And that finally you would worship Jesus. Worship Jesus because he's your prophet, your priest, your king, your savior, and because he's God and he deserves it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for how he saved us, how he's rescued us from darkness. God, help us all to respond to him correctly. We thank you for the joy he gives us. Pray that we would be faithful to share that joy with others. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.